Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right. Well, uh, good afternoon, everyone. We're going to go ahead and get started. Uh, my name is Ben Felder. I'm a state government reporter with The Oklahoman, and welcome to The Oklahoman's weekly Twitter Spaces series during the 2022 election season. Uh, each Wednesday, we are going to take a dive into a specific aspect of Oklahoma's elections and races, bringing in different guests to discuss important storylines and answer some of your questions. Today, I am joined by Molly Young, who is the Oklahoman's Indigenous Affairs reporter, and she's going to talk with us today about the possible impact of the native vote and the way that tribes are getting involved in this year's election. Uh, Molly, are you there? Okay, sorry for the delay. I'm here. Oh, oh, sorry about that. I, uh, this is just the second week we've been doing this, so you think it it's, seems like a simple technology, but uh, uh, still a few things I'm learning. So, hey, Molly, how are you doing today? I'm doing pretty well. How are you? I'm good. Well, hey, thanks so much for, for your time. Um, joining us or joining me this week in this uh in this twitter spaces conversation about the elections you know when we were thinking about kind of the different issues and topics and storylines that we wanted to cover um you know obviously we want to look at specific races but we want to look at maybe some important topics like healthcare and education but um you know native affairs seemed like one that was extremely relevant always relevant here in oklahoma but maybe maybe especially this year so uh, really grateful that you could join us uh, to talk about this. Um, and like I said, Molly, it's hard to talk about politics in Oklahoma without talking about the state's Native American population. Um, it's also hard to talk about Governor Kevin Stitt's first term in office without discussing the state's network of tribal nations. But uh, before we discuss the governor and, and other specific political races, I, I think it's important to kind of have a brief explainer on Oklahoma's Native community. Um, this isn't a homogenous community. We're talking about a diverse network of tribes and, and cultural identities. Um, so, Molly, I'm curious, how how would you describe the Na- Native American community to someone who's unfamiliar with Oklahoma? Well, that's a great question. And so Oklahoma is it's really a unique because the has 39 tribal nations, really from the southwest corner of the state to the northeast corner. And all of the tribal nations um, have different traditions, customs, cultures, in large part because most of the tribal nations were removed from their traditional homelands in the 1800s to what is now known today as Oklahoma. So really we have you know, tribes that um, are from as far away as the Pacific Coast, to, um, you know, the Great Lakes region. So there's a vast um, cultural diversity that still exists today. And Oklahoma, too, has one of the largest Native American populations in the U.S. um, in terms of um, voting age populations. So I think about 14 percent of um, voting age people in Oklahoma are Native American. 
Yeah, so definitely, uh, definitely a, a group with some force. Um, let, let's start by talking about about the governor um, and this and this governor's race. Um, you know, I think it's fair to say that Governor Stitt has had kind of a rather contentious relationship with many tribes. And if you look back at the history of the governor's office, um, as you just said, the, the, the network of, of tribal nations in the state is, is a is a powerful group and one that governor's offices have had to work with on a variety of issues. Um, governor Stitt was brand new to politics, and, and maybe that created some of the bumps in the roads. But either way you look at it, I think that it's fair to say that this governor has had you know, one of the more unique relationships with the with the tribes that we've seen in recent years. Um, what's the history of that? What what, what have we seen during Governor Stitt's uh, four years in office? So starting back to when Governor Stitt um, was seeking election to his first term, he did get some support from tribal nations, especially the larger tribes in um, the eastern part of the state that are more active um, in in state politics. Um, That support waned um, really soon into his time in office. Um, I think about six months in when he um, decided to try to renegotiate the state's compact that covers gaming, which many tribes, I, I believe about 33 of Oklahoma's 39 tribes have gaming operations. There's a central agreement that Um, outlines how much money the state will receive from each of those operations. It's a a percentage of revenues. And Governor Stitt said that that percentage was too low compared to other states, and he sought to renegotiate that central agreement. Um, Many tribal leaders were really caught by surprise. Um, They didn't know that was coming, and by their understanding, the central agreement had already been renewed um, and was in, in full effect and wasn't op- up for renegotiations. So that really, um, you know, kind of started the some friction in the relationship. And, and then things really, um, you know, continued to, um, I would say, get more heated from there, particularly after the Supreme Court ruling in McGirt versus Oklahoma. Yeah, you know, I think back to, I mean, I think we've we've seen so much of a focus on on McGirt over the last couple of years that it's sometimes it's easy to kind of forget about that first year and the um, the gaming compacts. Uh, I mean, this is a significant source of revenue for 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 many of the tribes, and so if you want to look at it as a as a group of businesses, it's, the tribes are obviously more than that, the sovereign nations, but as a as a business community. Um, the, you know, the governor essentially was saying, hey, I think we need to take more, you know, you need to be paying the state for more for the right to do to do business here. Um, and I remember early on, you know, the governor said, hey, maybe we should open this up beyond just tribes and we could bring in private casinos. And so it was really kind of a, a a threat to many of, you know, the major income streams for a lot of these tribes, right? Right. And you know, it's really unique. Um, tribal gaming has been a huge economic force that has helped transform tribal nations into more being more self-sufficient and being able to not only um, support their citizens, but also pay for future economic development and just continue to grow their economic bases in a way that, you know, they just 
didn't have access to before. And this isn't just happening in Oklahoma. This um, tribal gaming is regulated on the federal level. So what um, what is unique in Oklahoma is that um, tribal gaming um, is under this central compact that really looks at um, a specific type of gaming, and that is um, kind of like the Vegas slot style casino gaming for the most part. And that is what is regulated under the compact. And of those revenues from those types of games, the state receives four to six percent of those revenues, which over the past almost trillion dollars state spends that money on um, education for the most part yeah and so if the uh, if the compact dispute was kind of a kind of seen as a as kind of a I don't know attack for lack of a better word on the business interests of many tribes uh, McGirt really kind of brought into question you know the, the very issue of sovereignty right Right. So what McGirt was looking at is who really has um, power on on lands that were promised by the federal government in the 1800s to tribes that were removed from their traditional homelands to Oklahoma. And what the Supreme Court found is that specifically the Muscogee Reservation still existed today and had not been disestablished by Congress. And only Congress has the power to um, disestablish a reservation. And that ruling was then applied to now um, five other reservations, mostly in the eastern part of the state. And the effect of that is that it really has um, shifted um, prosecutions of criminal cases involving Native Americans away from the state to tribes and the federal government. So it is allowing um, tribes to exercise um, their powers in a way that had not been recognized for quite some time here in Oklahoma. So how have these issues impacted the way tribal governments have viewed the 2022 election? I mean, you've, you've, and you're, job you you speak to a lot of tribal leaders and citizens and and people associated with the tribal governments i mean how have these two kind of major issues influenced if at all the way that they're viewing um uh, this year's this year's elections right so we talked earlier about the diversity of oklahoma's native american community and so you know of course we see that in the election too where no one tribal leader or tribal nation um you know, has the exact same views, but um, some common threads that we're seeing is, you know, Governor Stitt has been a really vocal critic of the McGurr ruling, and he has said that it really kind of threatens the state's sovereignty, whereas on, on the other side of the coin, tribal leaders see it as, you know, a um, reinforcement of their own government sovereignty. And so um, this continued criticism of something that tribes see as a win has really um, fueled more focus on this year's elections and, um, you know, kind of looking at can 
tribes work together to perhaps get someone else into the state's highest office. Have you gotten a sense that um, that the governor has that in, in a way that this might have that his the way that he talks and has interacted with the tribes maybe has 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 angered them. But have you gotten a sense that this is something that he sees as kind of supported by his own base? Does that make sense? I mean, is this a, is this a political issue for for him where he feels like, hey, I this is a winning issue for me. I think Oklahomans agree with me that we need to be questioning the the relationship we've had with tribes. Have you gotten any kind of sense of that? You know, I think that's a great question and something that, you know, with me, my reporting really steeped in um, Native communities and tribal nations. Um, You know, I'm often seeing, again, that kind of other side of the coin. But but I think what you're saying makes a lot of sense because um, Governor Stitt's messaging has not changed now for for the time that he has been in office. And in fact, um, you know, our colleague Carmen and I reported um, about earlier this year, I I believe that Governor Stitt and tribal leaders, particularly of the state's largest tribes, are just simply not meeting. Um, They're not discussing anything at this point, any having any sort of substantive talks, which is um, really different than any other administration in recent times. And that hasn't changed this year. Um, you know, every time I ask if, if those meetings are happening again, I, I get told no, that, you know, the, there, there's just no communication between the two at this point. Yeah, I remember covering the early days of the state administration and kind of how radical it was for to have a sitting governor of either party, um, you know, kind of taking a pretty aggressive tone towards towards the tribal tribal nations, and and in the early days, as you said earlier, that, that had a lot to do with the gaming compacts. Um, and I remember hearing from people in his circle who said that they felt like this was a a issue that their base was was concerned about. Um, but I think it's also important to note that you know the tribal governments are have an impact that goes beyond their own their own citizens, right? I mean, in, in many communities across the state, I'm sure you've been to many of them, um, the, the local tribes are the ones that are building roads and building hospitals and building infrastructure that, um, you know, obviously is benefited by beyond just their own citizens, but the, but the entire community. Right. That's a great point. Um, there was a study released earlier this year really taking a look at that full economic impact of tribes. And while I... Um, don't have the you know number of figures um, on the top of my head right now. What it really found is that um, tribes make a a really large impact, particularly in parts of Oklahoma, where there aren't you know any other types of industries. And tribal nations are headquartered way, where they are, and they're not going to leave. And so you know they are very stable employment base and often employ, you know, non-tribal citizens as well as providing um, money for infrastructure and schools like you mentioned. Yeah, you know, something I feel like we've seen and you've reported on this is it seems like there's been an effort among some tribes and some organizations to increase the native vote. Um, What specifically have you seen in this area? So there's been sort of um, two different branches. One has been like a very long-term effort to 
um, increase voting participation among within Native communities, which historically have lower turnout rates than um, others. And that has been around in Oklahoma for about two decades, I believe. Um, The main effort there is called Rock the Native Vote. And they really help organize um, tribal communities. And they're taking a particular look this year at young voters, um, kind of that 18 to 32 range. And engaging them, um, they recently had a like a concert series at the First American Museum in um, Oklahoma City that was really well received and attended. And they're trying to get young voters energized. And there is a a second effort that was um, started by United for Oklahoma, which is kind of a, a roundtable group of tribal leaders that came together actually in response to some of the friction that they were um, seeing from the governor's office. And that really brought tribes together in a way that we hadn't seen in um, recent decades. And so they started a a voting initiative as well, where they're working with tribes to, um, you know, host voter registration events and, really just focus on the message that, you know, it is important to get to the polls and cast your ballot. Yeah. Have you got a sense of, of whether or not the governor's race is, is top of mind for many Native American voters? I mean, has that kind of been a theme um, with some of these drives or at least among some of the communities that have, um, that have become new registered voters? You know, that's definitely been, um, for voters, when I ask, um, it's really the governor's race, what I hear, that they are um, concerned about sovereignty and about the state's relationships with the tribes. Because what I often hear is that tribal citizens are also citizens of Oklahoma as well. And so they, you know, are really looking to hopefully improve relationships um, with state leaders. Um, another race that people are watching is is really focused on, I, I guess I should say it's a little more disparate, um, looking at state house and Senate races and also the superintendent of public instruction and really around the theme of education and with the um, the the so-called ban on, on the critical race theory and teaching the critical race theory in Oklahoma schools many tribal citizens and leaders are worried that that will decrease the amount even even further that Oklahoma students learn about tribal history and about how the state was formed. And so that is another um, big issue that people are talking about. No, it's interesting. You know, I think when we talk about the kind of CRT debate uh, this year or the, or the past couple of years, um, it's often been framed uh, along a uh, history of like civil rights and slavery. And there's many reasons for that. Uh, you know, the, 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 the New York times uh, project on slavery from a few years ago was kind of a catalyst for some to kind of jump into this debate, but we don't hear quite as much about kind of um, the indigenous community and that history. Um, and so it makes complete sense that that would be top of mind for some of these communities. Can you kind of unpack that a little bit more? I mean, kind of what are you, when, when, when they think about the teaching of history, of, uh, of Native American history in schools, 
um, particularly here in Oklahoma, which has such a such a deep and rich history. Uh, what are some of the specific concerns about what is allowed to be taught, what's not, and what kind of conversations are taking place in schools? Because, like I said, that's I don't think we we think about maybe the Native community quite as much when we're talking about this larger uh, kind of conversation about teaching teaching race and equity in schools. Right. It it goes back to what I was saying earlier, even about, you know, before Oklahoma was formed, um, it was regarded as Indian territory and tribes um, were promised by the federal government that exchange for ceding their homelands, that they would have a permanent home and a permanent land base in Oklahoma, uh, what is now Oklahoma. And, um, you know, over time, the federal government opened tribes land bases up to um, white settlers. And they did that first by, you know, breaking up reservations and allotting it to individual tribal citizens. And the land that was left was often, you know, given at very low rate to, to other people to settle. So that's why we see today that um, some tribes have very small land bases, some tribes um, do not have a land base at all. And that's the type of history that, um, you know, tribal leaders and tribal citizens are really concerned that they don't want that erased from public school teaching. And they think it's important that um, students really learn how, how the state was formed. Yeah, and so um, obviously we're looking ahead to the November race, but real quick, I do want to mention, um, you know, when we look back to June, the Republican primary, um, the election for a, a attorney general, um, it seemed like that the, the McGirt issue was also, you know, fairly loomed fairly large in that race as well. You had John O'Connor, the current attorney general, um, who took up a lot of the same, uh, you know, stance and rhetoric as as the governor and talking about McGirt, um, you know, he lost uh, his, his re-election bid. Um, he was appointed to that seat. So this was the first time for him to be on a ballot. Uh, did you get a sense that the the, 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 the native vote or that issue, uh, you know, loomed large or had any kind of sway in that race? You know, I definitely think that the attorney general's race in the primary was one of those top issues that, um, tribal leaders were looking to and were concerned about. And definitely, um, as you mentioned, um, with the McGirt ruling and then with the follow, follow-up ruling in um, the Castro Huerta case, um, that was something that they didn't see that this current attorney general's office would really um, change their position on. And with the potential of a new attorney general, that's gives some hope that there may be um, some some room to work together and negotiate. Yeah. Well, um, Molly, this has been great. We kind of really appreciate this insight and, um, and some important storylines to follow this election. I'm kind of curious as we kind of wrap up, you know, what are you going to be watching for when you're this election season? That's a great question. Um, one of the things I'll be looking at is is just what you mentioned in terms of really looking for the impact of these um, voter registration initiatives. Um, what are we seeing with the 
um, rural vote, especially um, voting districts located near um, tribal communities? Are we seeing any changes in turn of in terms of voter turnout? And then another thing that you know we'll be continuing to monitor is, um, of course, following the money. So um, where are tribal nations donating to in this election season or tribal leaders? And, um, you know, just continuing to follow that as the election comes closer. Well, let me ask you a follow up on that, because we haven't really talked about that. The, 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 the funding um, from, from some of these tribal governments and organizations is pretty significant. Right. And but not always easy to track. So when we're when we're talking about the financial involvement uh, of tribal nations in, in this election, what what are we talking about here? What do we, and, and what do we know and what do we not know? So we definitely know that um, tribes are becoming more politically active on the fundraising side than they have been in past elections. And um, it's often, again, I've mentioned those eastern Oklahoma tribes, the larger tribes, namely, in in this case, the um, Choctaw and Chickasaw nations. Um, The Choctaw Nation has done something really interesting this year in that they've started their own political action committee on on the state level, which they had never done before. And um, they um, donated $425,000 to it. It has really, um, in the primaries and the runoffs, it focused on um, Republican House and Senate races. So we'll continue to follow that for the general election as well. Um, as a whole, um, tribes have given nearly $1.4 million um, through August um, during this election season to either candidates or political action committees spending on behalf of candidates or certain races. And there's always questions about kind of what dark money involvements might, might be, which, you know, the organizations in which, you know, we're not able to track those donors, um, you know, hence being dark money. It's not, it's not always easy to tell where this money is coming from, but have you, have you gotten a sense that, um, that we've seen any involvement from tribes and some of these um, uh, nonprofit organizations that are able to shield their, their donations? You know, um, that's something that we're continuing to dig into. Um, there was definitely um, some questions that were raised surrounding one pack that was that shared an address with the Choctaw Nation headquarters. However, it's um, I believe one of its officers of that pack, um, one of the only public-facing officers, had said that he works for the Choctaw Nation and he registered the pack to his work address because he wasn't comfortable having it under his home address and the Choctaw Nation had said it wasn't affiliated with them but that that um, pack did receive a large donation from one of these dark money groups and so we'll continue to follow that as well. Yeah well um, with an increase in spending from tribes seen and unseen obviously that's going to have an impact in the election and then the next and uh, in, in the weeks to come, uh, you know, people are going to be seeing commercials and other types of advertising, and I, I would expect that maybe some of these uh, um, native issues are going to play are going to loom large, uh, maybe directly or, or indirectly, in, in some of the messaging that uh, the voters are going to be seeing in the, in the coming weeks. Um, hey, Molly, thanks so much. Um, the, very informative for those of you who uh, joined us a little bit late. Um, this uh, feel free to, to catch it. The rest of this or the entirety of this recording. 
um, on the link that will be shared after we end. You can also find us on the um, Oklahoman's Political State podcast page. Just look for Political State under your favorite podcasting app, and you'll be able to, to follow us. So that's going to do it for this edition of Twitter Spaces on the Oklahoma elections. Uh, before you do go, I want to invite you to check out the Oklahoman's new political newsletter, Political Wins. Uh, you can sign up by clicking on the link in my Twitter bio. It's free, and it drops each Monday morning. Also, if you're not already, I'd like to invite you to become a subscriber to The Oklahoma, especially if you are a follower of politics. You aren't going to want to miss the next several weeks of coverage, um, especially from Molly Young, who joined us today. Molly, thanks so much for your time. Thank you, and thank you, everyone, for um, joining us and having this conversation. Yep. Well, yes, likewise, thanks for joining us. We're going to be back again next Wednesday. Uh, look at my Twitter feed um, for information on the time and our guest as we dive into more election issues as Election Day approaches. Uh, thanks for listening and have a great rest of your day. Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts.